Welcome to another edition of the Litigation Psychology Podcast, brought to you by Courtroom Sciences. Dr. Bill Kanaski coming at you. Uh, I'm going, before I introduce my guest today, um, and we're going to go at it on a little UCLA versus UNC, uh, we'll save that for later. Uh, I'm I'm certainly going to win that argument on a couple <laughs> levels. I, I think I'm going to lose on a couple uh, too, but we'll 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 get into that later. Um, I'm going to go right into my my rant. There's a conspiracy going on in my house. I have interrogated my entire family. Now let me set this up. the 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 greatest thing in the world, okay, is the Reese's peanut butter cups stored in the freezer. Okay. Great. It's the greatest thing in the world. Okay. My wife buys them for me, puts them in the freezer and mysteriously have been, let's just say been the, 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 the stash has been depleted at a very high rate. Now I only eat one of these a night. I eat one after my dinner. I love it every evening. And I've been going into the freezer and noticing these things have been disappearing at a very alarming uh, rate. So um, I cross-examined a uh, cornered first and then cross-examined uh, my entire family. Uh, wife innocent, she doesn't eat any of that. So I got the two boys. Uh, they completely blamed each other. And then it turns out that their friends have been sneaking in the freezer and stealing my Reese's, my frozen Reese's. And then I found, I found wrap. I did a full examination of bedrooms. I found, I found wrappers. I have all the evidence. Okay, so I, I have I have got all the uh, guilty pleas entered. I have to figure out what the punishment for this is going to be. But there's one thing you're going to do. You can do a lot of stuff to me. Okay, if you steal my Reese's, my frozen Reese's, we're going to have serious problems in this household or any place else. Just throwing that out there for everybody. I've gotten to the bottom of this. I'm saying I was, I was very upset this week. Uh, let me bring in my guest and uh, Brian. I'm going to try not to uh, butcher your name. Uh, Brian Agahani. Brian Agakani. Agakani. I, I was I was I was close. We'll just go with Brian because you know your your last name, my last name gets butchered uh constantly. It's never spelled right or or said right. Uh Brian is from the uh board and summer firm out in Los Angeles. Uh we met recently uh at a seminar when I was out in LA. And uh Brian's a trial attorney. He's a trial attorney in civil litigation. And he uh, helps defendants on a wide array uh, of, of cases. And we're looking forward to talking uh, with him today. Uh, Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Bill. Uh, we might have some longer, complicated last names, but we have short first names that are easy with a B. So just Brian and Bill, let's go Brian, with that. Brian and, and by the way, no one names their kids Brian and Bill. See, it's, they're very strong names, Brian. See, now you're, you're getting these these kids with the very weak first names in fact their la their first names are actually last names like cooper parker i mean these are not real names i don't know where that happened but the well, straw yeah. the bills the bryans the michaels the joes they're obsolete and it's it's really it's disappointing shorter with emphasis and brian and bill almost sounds like a buddy buddy cop show right <laughs> exactly <laughs> exactly um so the first question i have for you before we jump into our core topic i like i love at asking this question to to every guest is um what what in the world got you uh in, in, into litigation and was was brian going to be 
maybe a physician or a, a physicist or a pharmacist, but somehow you kind of ended up in law. And don't tell me you're because I've had like four guests that say, oh, I wanted to be a trial attorney since I was five years old. I'm like, come on, that cannot be true. You have no life if that's true. Brian, where did it all start? Well, uh, for starters, uh, I wasn't tall enough to make the NBA. So that, that was out. That was out. That was my original goal was to be in the NBA. I love basketball. And then when that didn't uh, come to fruition, then uh, my life of being a rock star, that didn't work out as well. So you were 0 for 2 at this point. Oh, 0 for 2 okay. on those <laughs> dreams that you had as a kid. You know, I want to be a firefighter yeah. or I want to be a musician or an NBA or sports star. That didn't work. Although, interestingly enough, uh, I was going to go play soccer in Europe when I was 14. So oh, I wow. did have enough skills to go transfer, but my parents didn't let me go when I wasn't 18. So I didn't have the, the decision-making power. Well, it's the European soccer fans, Brian. It's too dangerous. It's too dangerous. Have you seen these hooligans? And it's, it's not safe. Right. I mean, there, there are actually folks who are hooligans who are banned from stadiums and cannot travel to these stadiums because just, they just do wild shit. Yeah, we don't need that. We don't, we, we, we don't need that. So now you're 0 for 3 at this point. You're thinking, okay, I've got to come up with some different goals in life. So how, how did you get from point A to point B? So when we go off the uh, dream careers to the more, <laughs> you know, not saying that what I do isn't a dream, but going on to the more traditional path, you know, I just honed in on certain skills that I have, right? So I always like to say there there's a triangle of skills at any good attorney needs to have it's communication judgment and writing if you have those three skills then you can probably be a good litigator so I used those skills to hone in on the fact that hey maybe I can do this attorney thing and it really came with my passion and uh, again I love entertainment sports I love movies just you know the romanticism of seeing somebody in the courtroom you you see them uh, you know time to kill or you know, Matthew McConaughey doing his <laughs> thing is all right, all right. Uh, as a trial attorney, seeing those type of things and seeing the presence of being able to tell a story in the courtroom is Huge. what really, really got me. Because, Bill, I'll tell you this. Um, when lay folks ask me what is trial, this is my definition of trial. It's two sides telling a story and 12 neutrals deciding whose story they believe. I agree. That's all that's right. We, we, we make it far more complicated than it actually is. And I would argue very strongly that the side that has the most understandable and simplistic story, you know, has a huge advantage. But unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, um, the number of trials has really decreased. Um, and so many of these battles, right, uh, the battles are really in, in, in discovery. And that's what we're going to talk about today. You know, we've had several guests on and Dr. Witt and I. Uh, and Ava Hernandez have talked a lot about witness performance at deposition because it's so critical. The results of the the deposition performance, uh, particularly for the you know the the defense, uh, you know the corporate rep, thirty b six, the the key fact uh, witnesses, you know people in key spots um, that can have a you know a huge economic impact uh, on the case. What we haven't really focused on is really the attorney side of this because I think that there's this misconception. Um, and I know every state's different with with their laws as far as particularly defending a deposition, you know, how much a defense attorney can do. But 
I think there's this misconception that during a deposition of a key defendant right, or a corporate rep, that the defense attorney is just kind of sitting there, <laughs> right? <laughs> you throw out a couple form objections, right? You say, I need a break. I need to hit the head. Um, and there's not a whole lot going on and a whole lot of work being done by defense counsel. I think you're going to disagree with that. Uh, strongly, Bill. Yeah. And uh, for starters, I'll just take a step back and say, if trial is a story, the heart of that story are depositions. Mm -hmm. Cases are won and lost at deposition. I agree. And in particular, for defending depositions, if you're going about it correctly, most of the work is done in preparation. Yeah. Most of the work is done before the deposition. I mean, you're well aware as a jury consultant, I'm sure you've spent many, many hours and many, many sessions with corporate reps and oh, yeah. fact witnesses, especially on those higher exposure cases, yeah. right? Um, and if you go about defending the deposition with appropriate preparation, much of your work is already done. Your work actually in defending the deposition is to remind your witness of the strategy and to stay on track. So for example, um, I am more aggressive than the average defense attorney defending a deposition. A lot of attorneys might make one or two objections and let's say a two hour deposition, not me because I'm over-inclusive, right? Mm -hmm. In California, if you don't make objections as to form, they're waived at trial. Wow. Wow. So you need to make those objections as to form and you just say the objection and give a hint. For example, if I say calls for speculation, I'm giving a hint to my client or witness that if you don't know the answer, probably best to say I don't know. Or if the objection is overbroad, I'm giving a hint to my witness or client, the other attorney is generalizing. Not every situation is the same which then goes to your, it depends yeah. type answers, right? And for example, defending against reptile. Um, and then another, another, another good one is, is incomplete hypothetical, which is yeah. essentially telling the witness they are giving you a set of facts that are not necessarily true that are linked for it with a negative outcome, right? These are hints, these are ways to be active to make sure you keep your witness on the right track. Yeah. And um, an another one uh, in there that I generally hear from uh, folks like you in California is the um, um, calls for an expert opinion. That's a, that's another kind of type of question they get that they really shouldn't be answering because, you know, they don't they don't have uh, the proper uh, training or they, they don't have the, the skill set to answer uh, those questions. And, the, and oftentimes the cross examiners trying to bait them to get them to give a, a an official opinion on that when they really when they when they really shouldn't so how how do, when you work with witnesses and i do a ton of work with witnesses as you know how how do you deal with your witnesses that and a lot of them you know what i'm talking about they really want to have all the answers i mean they want to have all the answers and a lot of these objections really the proper response is yeah, I can't answer that question or that's outside the scope of my practice or the, like you really don't answer it because it's not a fair question, but you get some of these witnesses that you know, they're emotional, they want to win. And, and other ones, 
they, they kind of feel stupid or dumb if they if they don't provide an answer to one of these uh, unfair questions. How do you deal with that that type of witnesses? Because I, I see a lot of that. Let's unpack that a, a bit, yeah. Bill. So there are several layers to, to your question. One being, how does a witness not look stupid, right? Or yeah. feel like they're not giving an answer when I don't know or yeah. I cannot speculate or... I don't have enough information to answer your question, however you want to phrase it, when that answer is probably the best, right? And I think it's less of an issue with a fact or percipient witness, Mm -hmm. because for example, if you're asking someone who isn't in the safety department, a safety question, the truthful and honest answer is it's not within my job duties. I don't yeah. know that that is actually the appropriate answer and, and you get out of that deposition without any negative testimony. More of the issue of, of, of looking stupid or feeling that you're sounding stupid is with the corporate reps right there that's that's tough because they 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 have a it's a different ball game right different uh, set of, 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 of pressures and um, usually much longer depositions right. Well, because because they're supposed to be the person most yeah. knowledgeable or the person most qualified. So how are you knowledgeable or qualified if you say, I don't know, right? So it's, it's really, and yes, and those depositions, well, in California anyways, which generally has a seven hour limit, that doesn't yeah. apply to persons most qualified or knowledgeable. It's about having a conversation with your witness and, and essentially reminding them that, hey, and I usually end a lot of my prep calls with, just remember, a deposition is, is saying what you know. And if you don't know something, I don't know is appropriate. But let me at least give a really good example, Bill, sure. of how this plays out. So usually there are categories of persons most qualified or, or corporate reps that are given, 10 categories, 20 categories, however many. Um, but not every category category applies and the other side tries to make it seem like it does. So it's getting yeah. them to understand that really either the answer is doesn't apply, somebody doesn't exist, or I don't know. For example, if somebody came into our office, experienced the slip and fall, and then sued my law firm, and the other side noticed the category of those in the law firm most qualified or knowledgeable to discuss the maintenance or housekeeping of the law firm you know what the the answer to that is nobody yeah (laughs) there's no attorney paralegal accountant staff person who would be the person most qualified it'd probably be someone in the building or works for the building but not somebody who works for our firm so that's an example that i give and once i give that example then it's more likely the corporate rep will really understand where we're coming from. Yeah. Now, back to still on uh, defending uh, depositions of your of, of your clients. Um, we I've seen more and more of um, of of plaintiff attorneys mostly um, really kind of pushing the ethical limits in what they're doing at deposition. Um, yeah. at, purposefully asking insulting questions, for example, right? Um, or, or, or kind of going over the top with the, the table pounding and the making faces, uh, which is obviously totally designed to get the witness to go into survival fight or flight, you know, amygdala hijack mode and either get really nervous and lose their mind or 
get defensive and aggressive and start arguing uh either way you're going to be in trouble if uh any of your witnesses uh do that how how do how do you deal with that well first of all how do you prepare i know how i prepare uh my my witnesses for that but then during the actual deposition i know i mean i work with defense attorneys every week and a lot of them essentially say you know counsel you know i'm going to yank my witness out of here i'm going to end the deposition if you keep this bullshit up all that stuff how do you personally handle that cuz I, I just i see more and more of it well I think it's a it's a good point, Bill, and I think I've heard you say this before too. Typically, keep in mind who's on the other side because yeah. they're either going to start with oil or vinegar, right? So they're either either going to butter you up and 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 throw you softballs and try to be yeah. your friend, or they're going to come more aggressively and try to intimidate you into giving your answer, right? Because at the end of the day, if five times in a row you say safety is one of the values we have that's not how it works or in in our yeah. industry there's no ranked order but then the fifth or sixth time you say yeah safety is the most important thing no matter what nobody cares about the five times before exactly right because they think that's the truth when in fact it's not so how you handle that is really by i think again in the preparation advising your client who's on the other side, right? It's yeah. knowing your opponent, right? And I think that's one of the most important things you can do. So before every deposition, I understand who's on the other side and I kind of give my witness a heads up. I say, this attorney's more aggressive. They're gonna try yeah. to make you feel bad or this attorney's gonna throw you some softballs to be your friend. But at the end of the day, it's all about sticking to your guns. And it all happens. You know, we'll prep a witness a hundred times to say it depends, it depends, yeah. and then they'll spill the beans in the opposite yeah. direction, right? It, it yeah. all happens. But just remember, the best way testimony can be fixed is organically with the witness saying, I misspoke, that's not what I meant. Yeah. Or coming off a break and saying, I said something I would like to correct. Or at the very end, if it's your turn to ask questions, you take a break. Yeah review what the questions are and what the answers are with your witness they come mm -hmm. out they say it because if you walk out of that deposition and you did not fix that testimony you are stuck with it at trial and i, I think that needs to happen a little more often i know defense attorneys typically don't like to ask their witnesses right they could talk to their witness at any time but i think at the end a, just a little bit not going crazy a little bit of rehabilitation right to put some things in context may not be such a bad idea particularly in, 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 in certain venues, if that deposition is going to be and, used at trial. Yeah. And you can limit it, right? Nobody's yeah. saying ask your direct examination. Yeah. One, two, three questions. That's it. Yeah. Make it, make, make it simple. Now, fi final question on this topic. Uh, I find this one very interesting as well, because I actually had defense attorney say this to me and I kind of cringed, but I'm not an attorney. I'm a, you know, I'm a neuropsychologist. What can I say? is I said, hey, what are you doing tomorrow? He's like, ah, you know, I have to go to this co-defendant deposition. You know, it's a waste of my time. I'm just going to sit there, blah, 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 blah. It's not my witness, but I got to be there, right? What, what can a good strategic defense attorney do when when, when a co-defendant, an important co-defendant, um, is, is when their depositions is going and you're, you'll, you're still there representing uh, your client, and a lot, I think, again, another misconception is, well, if it's not your client, then you're just like this potted plant there at the conference table. But 
I'm assuming that you can be strategic and aggressive even when it's not your witness being deposed. Pick up the phone and call the other defense attorney. Yeah, <laughs> that, yeah, we should that, do that more of that. That is what you need to do. I, I, I mean, hmm. especially if it's a case where there isn't a cross complaint and, and fingers aren't being pointed, yeah. pick up the phone, call the other defense attorney, figure out what this witness is going to say. Moreover, figure out if this witness is going to say anything adverse to your client yeah. and figure out how to deal with it. Easy enough, if you have a good relationship with the other side or you're not pointing fingers, you make sure you monitor that, taper it, and, and make sure you're good at the deposition. You might not even have to ask anything. But if, if something bad might come out, then yeah. you've, you've got to prep for it and ask the appropriate questions. And sometimes that's a surprise and no one likes surprises, but you got to be on your, your toes in that situation, I imagine. Okay, let, let's switch gears. So let's get away from uh, defending depositions. And, and now, now you're going to be taking depositions and you can, um, you know, there's two scenarios here, right? You could be taking uh, the, the plaintiff or, you know, plaintiff uh, fact witnesses. Um, there's three scenarios, uh, you know, ex plaintiff expert witnesses or like we just said, it could be an adverse co-defendant who's pointed a bunch of fingers and now, you know, it's 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 game on. So let's 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 start with um um the 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 plaintiff. I yeah, I think that um yeah, in my 21 years of doing this, I I know that there's certain cases with certain plaintiffs, you better be damn careful. You better not you better not be a jerk. You better not be on the attack because that type of case does, you know, if it's a birth injury case, right? Yeah, unless unless mom was smoking crack in the third trimester, you know, attacking mom who just lost her baby right. or has a baby with a birth injury, probably not in your best interest, right? But there's plenty of other scenarios where there's, you know, plaintiff culpability, right? Where you can be more aggressive with plaintiffs. How, how, do, how do you plan and strategize when it comes to taking uh, the plaintiff and, and their, say, family members or friends' depositions? So it begins with having a strategy, right? I, I cannot tell you, Bill, how many depositions I've seen where an attorney is just asking questions and you can tell they're just crossing off an outline. Yeah. And they're not listening. They're just asking no strategy in mind. I can tell you within 10 minutes whether there's an actual strategy. Yeah. The way you prepare and strategize for a plaintiff's deposition is by knowing your case, right? It's about knowing the records, both the production records and the subpoenaed records. It's about knowing what witnesses are out there. And it's about understanding what foundational tools there are and being able to attack them. So, for example, if, you know, a plaintiff makes a wild accusation that your client did X, is there any documentation that supports that? Is there any witness that will support that statement? Because a lot of times, if a plaintiff is going to make a wild claim, I actually like that because... Yeah then yeah. it makes them less credible without sure. any support right so a lot of my process is is making a i don't rely on outlines very much when i'm taking a deposition really yeah. the outline is just there to guide me if i might have a brain fart or I, yeah. I forget what the next step is but you're really just listening and asking appropriate follow-ups and boxing the witness in right you know i I recently had a deposition where I didn't even get to admonitions into, until hour two because the witness said something 
literally on on the second thing yeah. i said and i went and i did all the damages yeah <laughs> you, you know it, well you just you you go where the testimony takes you so it's about having an appropriate outline knowing the discovery responses knowing the subpoenaed records and using them appropriately right so if there's an opportunity to get a wishy-washy answer or an i don't know into a favorable admission maybe show a record but for example if if the plaintiff says yeah i i, I landed on my back but the medical record in the er denies that the plaintiff landed on her back just leave it leave yeah. it don't allow the plaintiff to explain themselves and there you go you've got your impeachment evidence so preparation outlines knowing the knowing the discovery that that's what you need to do now how about um you know, they, they you got some good experts out there. And I think there's two types of experts. Um, and I think you probably prepare different for each. Um, I think you have some experts who are the sm smart ones uh, who kind of purposefully um, try to split their time between plaintiff and defense work, right? They're, 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 they're balanced um, and because they want to be perceived as, hey, I don't have a dog in this fight. Uh, but then you got the ones that do exclusively, <laughs> you know, plaintiff work, right? And that's always something uh, that comes out. What's your strategy and preparation when uh, deposing plaintiffs' experts? Experts are completely different from plaintiffs. Different ballgame. Yep. So for a plaintiff deposition, and we're pretty thorough and complete in our examinations. I mean, I'm usually six hours plus when I'm taking a plaintiff deposition. Some of the best expert depositions I've ever seen taken are an hour. It, it, it really is about, so a lot of experts are medical experts, for example, mm -hmm. on the plaintiff side. You're not going to outsmart a 20 year neurosurgeon. That, no. That's no. that's not what you're supposed to do, right? Yeah. But what you're supposed to do with an expert is to box them into their opinions, attack their foundation, find out that they're not appropriately licensed in certain areas mm -hmm. uh, that they say they are, right? These are, or they have licenses that are applicable to other countries, but not the states. I've had that in cases. That's nice. Right, ex exactly, right? So then you can file a motion to laminate. Uh, this isn't a correct engineer in this particular mm -hmm. practice area or discipline. So with plaintiff's experts, you really need to have a strategy and the strategy of, for example, if causation is the main issue with this plaintiff, you box them in to, to a, and an opinion where they will say something along the lines of, I, I, I didn't evaluate this patient to determine causation. However, I just treated them with surgery. And if in their testimony, they never say, which a lot of times with eggshell plaintiffs, they will, that the injury was worsened let's say they had pre-existing degenerative yeah. disc disease. It was worsened by the fall. A lot of times when the plaintiff is, you know, 50 plus, sometimes even 40 plus, they have some sort of pre-existing. Sure. So if they don't mention that the, that the uh, pre-existing condition was worsened by the fall, quickly conclude your deposition. Ask, do you have any other opinions to give at the time yeah. of trial? No, end your deposition. In California, we have something called Kenimer. If you don't get an opinion out, at the time of deposition, your SOL at trial, okay. right? So that's that's the difference. The difference is getting to your point of reference or your strategy and then ending the deposition when you got what you need. Get it, get out. 
Sounds like sounds like a plan. Now, when you're preparing for um, the the plaintiff expert that has worked on 200 cases and 199 of them <laughs> have been for the plaintiff. Um, what do you think is the best way to ex expose that to get that on? Those are fair questions. How much they're being paid, how much they've made, all that stuff. It gets everybody very uncomfortable without coming across like a total dick yourself. Right. I mean, cause there's, I, I see the ability there to kind of get snarky, right. It's to point this stuff out. What, what's kind of, what's, what's your approach to, to, to stay professional, but to also gain that information that they're not going to like. Right. Um, and, and, and still maintain your own credibility as the attorney. Right. So the bias questions, right. Yeah. It, it, it's about exposing, the the percentages you know plaintiff versus defense you know last time you ever testified the defense all those questions just a asking them in a factual format you don't you don't need to you know tease the uh, the the expert you don't you don't need to uh you know go off on a tangent mm -hmm. but what i think is important is asking them their awareness with respect to other experts in their field some of the best testimony i've gotten is you know, for example, the the ratio is ninety five to five plaintiff. One of the best bullet point questions I've got, or answers I've gotten for trial was this, based upon a question: Are you aware of any other expert who's ever testified more for the plaintiff than you? Answer: No. That is that's gold. You that is that is gold at trial, yeah. right? So yeah. then you just move on. Again, it's about getting that gold testimony and moving on because at, at that point. Yeah might say something that might make that testimony a little diluted so yeah. move on once you get what you get and you can also talk about you know how much they're being paid and stuff like that and and, and your experts are going to get the are going to get the same questions and so uh, yeah i think there's 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 right, right ways to, to to handle that um so fi so fi final question here uh regarding depositions then we'll move into more more, more fun stuff um and this this is kind of a surprise question I just came up with. Uh, I think it's an I, I think it's an important question. Um, and again, I like to talk about things no one else really likes to likes to talk about. Uh, it's actually two two separate uh, issues. Uh, number one, do you change your strategy? Um, I'm trying to say this the right way. If if you're going to depose a plaintiff or somebody important to play aside, and and it's and, and it, it's it's a woman, or it's someone. It's a woman of a different race, right? And you know, if it's guy versus guy, right? I mean, there's it's there's there's differences here, and um, I've heard defense attorneys say that they they interact with different people differently sometimes because of because of sex, because of race, and there's certain sensitivities. How do you approach that? Like, for example, if there was a, a female expert versus a male expert, do you, is it just the same across the board or is it is a difference? Because there, there's like, let's just fast forward to trial. The reason I'm bringing this up, there is an issue here. I get calls every week of clients going to trial or may a case I'm not working on. They say, hey, listen, you know, during the cross-examination, you know, it's a female plaintiff. Should I have my female colleague do the questioning? Will that look better? Because if I do it, do I look like I'm being like this misogynistic, big, mean jerk? If I'm questioning the female, you see where I'm going with this? How, do. how do you approach it? Because I do think at trial that that can be a big deal on certain types of cases, particularly in employment law, right? Um, wh where do you stand on this? Because I, th I think it's a unique topic. 
it, it is unique and it's difficult because I, I think really the heart of it is going to be during jury selection or jury yeah. deselection, right? It's understanding, you know, those folks in the box, their biases and, and deselecting those who you don't want. So if you think there is an issue of gender, so if you think there's an issue of race, you should deal with it at jury selection. Yeah. That, that, that's the time where it really matters because if it's that big of an issue, should be you know taken care of early at trial. Um, now, as far as let's say you, you get some out, but not all, and you have a gender or, or a race issue, I think, I don't think necessarily that if you're questioning, let's say, a woman that you have to also have a female attorney because a male attorney might come off. It's not about gender or race. It's about how you come off to the jury because, you know, folks forget, they think that uh, it's just about witness believability yeah. and credibility. No, no, no. The attorney's likability and credibility is just as important. You could be the greatest attorney in the world. The jury doesn't like you because they think you're rude or obnoxious. They're not going to believe you, right? So I think it's just being, you know, being a gentle person, being gentle with the witness, not seeming like an asshole, connecting with the jury, being nice to the clerk, being nice to the judge. It all pays off. My uh, my uh, cat has joined the. I don't know if you saw my LinkedIn post the other day. My. Uh... Oreo has joined the podcast. Hi. Oreo is the name of your cat? Or, or yeah, because she's black and white. And so that is, that she's, is fantastic. Uh, she, 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 she wants, she wants to, think. she did not eat my Reese's, uh, by the way. I also, was going to ask. No, I would, no, it definitely wasn't her. You, you, you don't want your cat eating chocolate, I could tell you that, or peanut butter. Um, yeah. It leaves a very big mess behind. Um, final question on, uh, on experts. And this, this is another, you know, this is not a comfortable question because I hear a lot of complaining. And I think it's, I, I agree with it. I hear a lot of the defense attorneys say, um, I'm mad at my client. They won't let me hire the expert I want. They want me to go the cheaper route. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm getting put in this terrible position because, you know, the, the plaintiff's hiring the, the expert expert and I'm hiring like, you know, somebody, maybe half of this person's qualifications, but they're also half of the rate. How do you talk to your clients um, about that on important cases? Because th I think that that's something I've heard a, a lot of. And I know defense counsel, they want the best for their clients. But when the client's not going to pay for the best expert that's available, that can kind of put you in a bind maybe, right? It, it, it can. You know, I, I think luckily enough, we've worked with with a lot of, of folks who who understand that a lot of times you have to pay a little bit more for the good experts. But yeah. at the end of the day, it's going to pay off. And again, it, it depends on the case, right? You know, mm -hmm. if you have a 50K exposure case, you're not gonna spend 20K on the world's greatest expert, but if it's a $10 million exposure case, $100 million yeah. exposure case, you'll spend 50K on your expert, right? So it, it depends on the case, but you know you know this from, from the seminar, Bill, when, when we were talking, uh, you know, getting out early, that early knowledge preparing yeah. with that mongoose method if you can evaluate the case what's pure exposure yeah. what's reasonable settlement range earlier it'll be easier to explain later why you need to pay x amount of dollars for an expert right yep absolutely absolutely okay let's shift gears so you got you you went to ucla for your undergrad yes okay um i'm gonna now i'm gonna cross-examine you uh isn't it true 
that Bill Walton is the most annoying basketball announcer in college basketball history. Isn't that true? I disagree. Oh, come on. He, he, <laughs> he goes on. Have you watched this guy? Now, by the, I gotta say he's really entertaining and he's such a sweetheart, but the game is going on and he'll be telling some story from 1969 and you know he's he he, he kind of goes off on his tangent. He's like the nicest guy in the world, but boy, it it, it, it kind of makes you wonder. Um, he's um, I, I he may not be the most probably not the most famous uh, UCLA grad, but uh, he he's definitely quite the um, he's he's quite a trip. Are are you a fan of his um announcing style? I I think I think Bill is a he's a hoot, right? I mean he yeah. he's really entertaining to listen to and i just love the the old-time war stories right like it's yeah. just i finished watching uh showtime and those those 80 lakers versus uh celtics rivalry games yeah. and, you know yeah, celtics I, tur yeah. turning up the heat that that stuff actually happened right so i just like bill walton from a storytelling aspect yeah. and obviously he's a bruin so i appreciate him yeah, it's a it's a it's a great basketball program and 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 very similar to North Carolina, my Tar Heels. You know, but both of those football programs for both of those schools, they that's like they 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 rip your heart out every year because you think this is the year. Like this is the year they're Don't actually you? going to do something in a different sport than basketball. And then they just they just shit on you. They just rip your heart out and they just urinate all over it it's, it's don't awful. you have like a top five quarterback this year in well, yeah but yeah. the problem is i have like the number 157th defense is the problem so yeah my guy can put up 42 points a game the problem is we're giving up 45 points a game that that doesn't work on the scoreboard brian uh no you never want to start the second half down 35 <laughs> to 3 do you no and i i, I say that <laughs> in every speech the problem is is we go up yeah drake may is fantastic um, I think he's better than that kid at uh, 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 SC. Now, do you okay? Then listen, I got the Duke Carolina over thing here on, on the East Coast. Tell me, just I'm really educate me because I'm not educated. I'm an East Coast guy. What is the UCLA USC? Right? Is it is it pure hatred? Is it jealousy? Is it just snootiness? Tell me about this rivalry between these two schools. So the rivalry is interesting. Um, it depends on who you ask, but I think kind of a general consensus is it's not really a hate rivalry. It's it's more of a uh, who owns this town rivalry. Okay. And it's more localized. So for example, when USC played Texas in that famous, you know, Vince Young, Reggie Bush yes. game, I was actually rooting for SC because on a larger scale, it's Los Angeles versus, you know, Texas, right? California versus Texas. So Fair I want the LA California team to win, but obviously locally I'm, I'm UCLA all the way. It's really depends on who you ask, but it's here. Hey, I'll put it this way. It's Cal it's California, Southern California. If, if your team loses, go to, go to the beach. Okay. <laughs> now what now I now I'm desperately dying to know this. Um, what is your opinion of the uh, dissolving, just collapse, whatever you want to call it, of the Pac-12? Pac-what? Pac-what, <laughs> yeah. And are you guys going over to the Big Ten? Is that is that the deal? I, I think so. I, I forget what year, but it, it, it's official. It's, I mean, it's it's, it's, it's it's coming up. It's the, it's those TV dollars, right? That that's what they're. Oh, chasing. it's 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 and it's ruining the sport. By the way, in my in my opinion, along with the NIL money and the transfer portal, 
Um, so are you going to be taking that trip to East Lansing, Michigan in, in late, uh, you know, early, early November, mid, mid November, you, you think you're going to be taking that trip? Have you been no. to East Lansing? No. And I'm not even going to pivot. It's just, no. It's just, it's just <laughs> a flat. Now, now, now Dr. Woods, a huge, uh, Spartan fan and he, he likes that weather, uh, up there, but I, I don't see UCLA traveling well to the, uh, to Columbus, Ohio on, uh, you know, November 11th. It, it I, might I, be more, it might be more money for us, but I, I think those results will be tough. You're, you're sending Southern California kids yeah. up, up to the Midwest not away happening. from their families in the cold. Nah, now, funny not... enough, all the big 10 people are going to want to go to California for the away game. So they're going to travel well. So well, you're, 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 you're uh, you used to live in Chicago, right? You're from the Midwest. 15 years in Chicago. Yeah. How about uh, how about your Bears? How, how are we doing this year? Um, they're they're the worst team in the league, and uh, I said this on an earlier version of the podcast uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, everybody, and I mean everybody, the head coach, all the assistant coaches, um, the the guy that sells the beer in the stands, he's all of them should be fired. The hot dog guy fired. The the parking attendant outside of Soldier Field field fired. Do we Every do we believe in fields? Them. Do we believe in fields? Uh, I, I, this is now. This is a major argument between me and my friends. Uh, I want fields out. I want to start over. I would love to see the kid from uh, Southern Cal. Um, well, I would yeah. love. I would love Drake May, but the Chicago ownership is completely incompetent um, and not wise. Hence their recent decisions. Um, I see them screwing everything up in the draft next year. I mean, in a dream world, they rebuild and they get your UNC guy, right? In a dream world, but I just, I don't see them making good decisions because since 1985, you know, this is where we're at. Okay. Final question. I think this is the question I've been, I've, I wrote this down hours ago. I'm waiting for this. All right. I, and by the way, I, I'm not losing this argument. I'm just throwing this out there. I'm not losing it. I, I know what your answer is going to be after the question. Now you're going to be wrong. Okay. 1980s LA Lakers dynasty versus the 1990s Chicago Bulls. Lakers all the way. Oh, come on. Now here's the funny enough. There are tar there are two Tar Heels involved. Three Tar Heels. You got Michael Jordan, you got James Worthy, and you got Scott Williams who played for the Bulls. Um, but the uh Michael Jordan James Worthy, uh, who did overlap a little bit, uh, but you saw like that passing of the torch. You know, when uh, uh, the Bulls did uh, defeat the Lakers, you know, in uh, one of those first of their six uh, uh, champions, you kind of saw the torch. Being well, that's what the 92 Olympics were. It was Bird and yeah. Magic pass, passing it to Jordan. It's it's, it's unbelievable. But uh, what a uh, um, I grew you know, I, I mean, back, this is back when they actually played the best basketball in the world took place in the 80s and early 90s in the NBA. Now, now I think it's quite frankly unwatchable. I, Not a big I, I agree. fan. I agree with you. I, I think if I were to say the best 10 years, it was like 85 to 95. That was oh, yeah. the prime NBA. Unbelievable. Um, and I mean, hey, I even think the Kobe, Kobe Shaq Lakers would, would, would beat the Jordan Bulls. Okay, and, now, okay, now you're, I don't know what type of hallucinogenic things you're you're consuming who, out there in who, California. Who guards Shaq? But who no, 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 who you're starting, you're, start, <laughs> who you're starting to sound like Bill Walton is what you're starting to sound like, Brian. Mic drop. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're going to stop there. Brian, thank you so much for being on the podcast. And uh, I'll see you at uh, LA soon. Uh, to our listeners, thank you so much for participating. Litigation Psychology Podcast. 
I'm Dr. Bill Kanaski. We'll see you next time. Bye.